Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program that seeks simplicity amongst the complex issues of cars and transport. I'm David Brown, and in this program we have news stories including Kia reveals its design philosophy behind its first electric vehicle. And in our first interview, Hyundai have a hatchback and sedan version of their i30 small-medium-sized car, but they are very different vehicles. Bill Thomas from Hyundai tells us why and what it means for the market. Respected motoring journalist David Burton talks of his friendship with the late Murray Walker, who has just passed away, aged 97. And finally, we get some enthusiastic reminiscences from motorsport commentator Will Hagen about racing minis and the characters who drove them. You can find more information at drivenmedia.com.au or previous programs are available as podcasts on iTunes or Spotify. Or there's our Facebook and Instagram sites, Overdrive City. So let's get the program going. First, the news. Kia has released photos of its soon-to-be-launched first electric vehicle, the EV6, which is part of the company's $32 billion investment in green vehicles over the next five years. They say it has more usable space, but the exterior design still looks like a crossover SUV. Kia's design philosophy is now called Opposites United. The teaser video with music they have released tries to explain what this means. It says in part, We strongly believe that both brand and design need to work together in symmetry to rise towards a future that will allow us to leave a mark. Opposites United is the definition of that mark. We celebrate nature's perfection and simplicity and we pay homage to it in everything we do. We want to share with you our vision in which nature and modernity can coexist. We want to create memorable and emotional moments in life for you by giving technology a soul. And we're using that technology to put people first. The vehicle is of practical importance, but it would appear that this explanation comes from a buzzword generator. Growth in the sale of large SUVs has been strong. So far this year, they are up 4.3% for large SUVs priced below $70,000, but up 9% for those over $70,000. The large expensive SUV category didn't even decline in numbers in 2020. Shooting up the sales chart is the new Land Rover Defender, which is in third place, behind the BMW X5 and the Mercedes GLE. The Hyundai luxury brand, Genesis, launched their GV80 into the segment in November 2020. It's an elegant-looking vehicle which has brought many positive comments from people as we tested it on the road. It was thought that it had the look of an Aston Martin or Bentley. Available with petrol or diesel engines and an 8-speed automatic gearbox, the entry level is rear-wheel drive and the others all-wheel drive. Priced from around $91,000 to $109,000 plus on-road costs. Toyota is about to launch a facelift of their Camry medium-sized sedan. 
the Camry totally dominates its segment in Australia of medium-sized passenger vehicles, less than $60,000, capturing more than two-thirds of that category's sales. It outsells its nearest rival, the Skoda Octavia, by more than six to one. The strength of the Camry sales has been its hybrid models, including serving the taxi industry. The Camry hybrid was first launched onto our market 10 years ago and was only the second Toyota hybrid model after the Prius. Four out of the five latest Camry models will be hybrids. The entry-level Ascent, which is non-hybrid, has a fuel consumption rated at 6.8 litres per 100 kilometres and is priced at $31,000. Hybrid models have fuel consumption figures ranging from 4.2 to 4.7 litres per 100 kilometres, with the top-of-the-line SL priced at $47,000. To all prices, you must add on-road costs. One of the most renowned commentators of Formula One racing, Murray Walker, has passed away at the age of 97. His unbounded enthusiasm was that of a motorsport fan rather than a self-promoting expert. He always stood when he was commentating so as to get as much air as possible into his lungs. Superficially, some only referred to the gaffes he made in his rush to tell the story of a race. But he was self-effacing and took this in his stride. He once said, I don't make mistakes, I make prophecies which immediately turn out to be wrong. Furthermore, the title of his autobiography was unless I am completely mistaken. He never criticised drivers as he appreciated what they did and the risks they took. A full interview with journalist David Berthon, who brought Murray to Australia on a number of occasions, can be heard on our website, drivenmedia.com.au. And that has been the news. When car companies have a sedan and a hatchback, they're often very similar, certainly at the front, and the sedan is often just a fairly pedestrian sort of vehicle at the back. Now, I've just been driving some of the Hyundai's i30s, a very successful little car in the small car category, along with things like Corollas. Now, the hatchback, it's been here for a few years, uh, looks fine and, and went, went went well. But then, as I was about to swap to the sedan, they drove out in the sedan and it looked just so different. And so I think making a particular statement. So where, where's that at? How's that all working? Well, the guy to talk about that is Bill Thomas, who is the general manager of Hyundai's Public Relations. G'day, Bill. G'day, David. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. They are often quite similar. Why is the i30 different? Well, it's interesting. They're actually completely different design generations. So the, the, the new i30 sedan that you've just driven is a, is an all new design generation. Um, one, one step further on from the hatch. Uh, and it's interesting that the, the sedan is actually sold and, and designed for the US market and the South Korean market, whereas the, the i30 hatch is primarily a European design. So what we've seen here is the is the is the sedan overtaking the hatch, if you like, in terms of design language. Does it give you a broader grasp of different elements of the market? It does, yeah. And we're always going to have sedans in our range. And I, I, I don't know about you, David, but I'm a bit of a sucker for a good sedan. I I grew up with with uh, Commodores and Falcons. I don't mind saying and. Uh, I've always uh, liked sedans. I like the way the luggage area is separate from the, the passenger area. And, 
I think it's always good to give customers choice, and, and that's what we're doing here with um, with both body styles, and obviously that aligns with our competition as well. Well, they are declining in number, yet I think there's some design cues. A lot of, of the hatchbacks are getting more angles and creases and that to it. This one has, I'd have to say, more an elegance. How, how would you describe it? So I would say that you're right there, and... The official term for the design language is sensuous sportiness, which is a bit of a mouthful, but you know how designers like to, to talk, that, talk that way. And the guy who oversaw the design um, of this particular car is a guy called Luke Donkervolker, quite an interesting surname, a Belgian designer. But if you look him up, um, he was responsible for the Lamborghini Murcielago, uh, the Lamborghini Gallardo and Bentley Continental GT. So he's some designer and he oversaw the look of this car. And if if you look carefully, you can see that sort of design elegance, the uh, Lamborghini cues in some of the lines, and, and also a little bit of a, a hint of Bentley here and there. It's, it's quite interesting, and I think we've, um, we've come a long way with design since Luke took over the global design chief role. Um, yes, you're right. It is, it's a very striking-looking car, but it has a certain elegance to it as well. What's the split at the moment? It's about 10% sedan, 90% hatch. Oh. It's around that level, so... Fairly small numbers in in some ways, but but we're quite um, we're quite happy with that. And I guess the, the the key to it is to is to really give customers that choice. There are different demographics in the market for these different sorts of vehicles. Yeah, it is. It's quite interesting actually. The the previous Elantra skewed toward a more mature demographic, um, people that were looking for, I guess, a, a little bit more of a bargain, but also had a traditional sedan in mind. So it was uh, that plus we found that the, there was a younger demographic as well, a bargain seeker for the previous Elantra. So it was a sort of combination of more mature and, and more youthful with a, a sort of gap in between, which was interesting. A gap that might be filled by a young professional that doesn't want to look with a normal boxy car but might want to make a statement without having to go to a, a huge, big, more expensive prestige vehicle? Yeah, that, that's what we're aiming at with this with this car. And with its design language, it, it has the ability to attract that kind of buyer. I mean, we're starting from around 25000 with with the manual, so it's still quite good value for money given the equipment in the car. But then we're going up to, you know, around thirty seven for the inline premium. So... We've got a quite a broad range there with a sort of sweet spot in the middle with the Elite uh, at around 30 to 31. So it's a broad range, but we're, what we're trying to do is make sure that we still have a value for money factor there, but also offer, as you say, the, the younger professional, a really stylish and well-equipped car. Inline premium, are they becoming the prominent part of the sedan sales? Very much so, David. Yeah, it's interesting. We, we, we don't have um, a breakdown of the premium model, but... N-Line overall, so we've got N-Line and N-Line Premium together, hmm. they're actually making up 41% of all i30 sedan sales year to date. So 40% is a little higher than we thought, but it looks like the N-Line is the one that people really want. It is interesting, and I think the split with demographic is proving what you've just said, that we're, you know, the N-Line and N-Line Premium models together with the turbocharged engines are, are really attracting that young professional buyer who wants more equipment and more performance. 
The more equipment, the dashboard is much more modern. It, it's a little flat in one ways, but it's clearly digital. Is that appealing to a particular part of the market? We're hearing from the dealers that that is a, a really good selling point. The thing that I liked about the material that we got, and I'm not just saying this to you, I, I push this as a line, is that you're up front about your automatic emergency braking. I think you call it FCA now, don't you? Forward collision assist. The important thing is that I think you listed in a table, what are the conditions and where does it work in terms of picking up a pedestrian? What speeds does it mainly operate in versus out on the highway? It's important that automatic emergency braking can mean different things to different people. The critical point is transparency and being upfront about that. We agree and we think it's important for people to understand not just what these systems can do, but what they can't do. Mm. And obviously, we're always promoting the idea of the driver being very much vigilant and in charge, but also understanding the limitations of these systems. It doesn't make you invincible. Definitely not, no. Bill, lovely to talk to you. Thank you very much for your time. Good on you, David. Thank you. And that's Bill Thomas, who is the General Manager for Hyundai Public Relations, talking about their i30. Oh, it's got a hatchback and it's got a sedan and they really are two quite different vehicles, which I think adds to the appeal of the market. And the complete interview with Bill Thomas is on our website at drivenmedia.com.au. You're listening to Overdrive. Audi S5 Coupe is one of those cars that you're just happy it exists. It highlights the fact that sports cars are not dead in the swing to SUVs. It also heralds a continuing stunning design profile that is both sporty and elegant. The S5 Coupe is powered by a 3-litre turbocharged V6 engine, produces 260 kilowatts and 500 newton metres of torque. This is enough for 0 to 100 kilometres in a touch under 5 seconds, with a governed top speed of 250 kilometres an hour. The exhaust note is music to the ears, and it is surprisingly economical as well. S5 models have a fast-shift 8-speed Tiptronic transmission, Audi Quattro system with a lockable centre diff, S-specific sport suspension with adaptive damper control that ensures superb ride and dynamics as you would expect. It is a pure delight to drive. The interior matches the performance with upgraded infotainment connectivity, Audi virtual cockpit amongst a long list of features. Special mention goes to this stunningly good LED matrix lighting system. Pricing for the S5 Coupe starts from $106,500 plus options and the usual costs. I'm Rob Fraser. This is Overdrive across Australia. We reported in our news the passing of motor racing commentator Murray Walker. He had a good run. He was 97 years old. He did his research before an event, but his stock in trade was his unbounded enthusiasm. He was a motor racing fan first and not a self-promoting expert. Australian motoring journalist David Berthon knew him well, and David joins us now with his reminiscences. David, thank you very much for your time. No, good afternoon, David. How did you meet Murray Walker? Well, look, it's quite a <laughs> quite a long, protracted story. In 1980, um, the family and myself, we took our 1910 Italian Scat to England to go in the Golden Jubilee Rally of the Veteran Car Club. And um, following that event, I'd arranged to put the car on display at Britain's National Motor Museum uh, while we toured around Europe for about another two months. 
And um, in that time, I got to know Lord Montague very well. And so um, during that period, and with Michael Ware, the curator of the National Matter Museum, um, I arranged in the next following few years to bring out some of the museum's quite early historic cars. The first car I brought in for a six-month tour was Lord Montague's 1899 Daimler, which was the first British racing car to race on the continent in the Paris to Ostend race of 1899. Um, and then the following years, I brought in two land speed cars, the, the wonderful Golden Arrow, um, that Sir Henry Seagrove broke the land speed record at Daytona Beach in 1930. And then I brought in Donald Campbell's Bluebird uh, for 12 months in 1986. So uh, I had quite an association with the National Motor Museum. And so Lord Montague invited my wife and I to the opening of a very special exhibit at the National Motor Museum called Wheels, which was a oh, it was a bit of a Disneyland type um, runway uh, exercise where you know you got in a little car and took you through the ages of motoring. Uh, it was a wonderful thing, and it was to be opened by Prince Charles. So uh, we arrived there in where was it early nineteen? It was probably eighty five when I did this. Uh, we, we were sitting waiting for. Prince Charles to arrive, uh, the selected guests in the National Motor Museum. was a beautiful building. And um, I hadn't realised it, but there was a briefcase beside... I, I was on the end of a row, and there was a briefcase on the end of a row. And um, a, a plainclothes detective came up to me from Scotland Yard and said, excuse me, sir, introduced himself, said, do you own a suitcase? And I said, no. And so just before this, of course, the royal family had had a lot of trouble. You might remember... I think it was um, the Queen's cousin. Lord Mountbatten. Lord Mountbatten in Ireland by the IRA. And they were very worried about bombs. And so because nobody owned this this suitcase or briefcase, they decided to evacuate the museum before Prince Charles came in. And um, we walked outside and this very nice gentleman smiled at me and it was Murray Walker. I introduced myself to him and he introduced himself and we became... Uh, quite comfortable in talking for the next half hour while I determined what this briefcase was doing. Was it a time, too, or that he made it, that Formula One wasn't such a mechanistic, pretentious environment? There was a bit of, you know, daring do, a little bit less, so much money involved in it that it's now become, yeah. if you don't do it my way, well, it's not going to go ahead. It's very manicured today, you know. Very- Manicured, and uh, you know he had the ability to mix with the rich and famous. He look, he you know he mixed, he talked about Bernie Ecclestone, he talked about all the greats, the Jackie Stewart, all those guys. He he was able to sit down and talk on very level. But then he could come and talk to somebody like myself, <laughs> and we go and have dinner, and he was equally as comfortable there. He was just a great conversationalist. There is one thing I must touch on, David. You mentioned at the beginning. You tripped around uh, England and Europe, I believe, in a 1910 scat with your two daughters. uh, um, I think they were both below 10 years old. Sometime I would really love to interview them about their memories, but that's another story. Uh, That that in itself, we won't go into great detail now, but that, that must have been a fantastic experience. Oh, well, I've just had some... Look, honestly... I'd always dreamed of driving a veteran car in England and um, 
and I put the whole exercise together. It was fascinating. We we um, shipped the car to Holland, came across on the day ferry to Sheerness in Kent, and then we spent a fair bit of time going up into Scotland. The rally started in Edinburgh, but um, we met some fabulous people. I drove the oldest Rolls Royce in the world. I won't go into too much and spoil your interview, but we we um, and it opened a lot of doors for me, David. I met some very interesting people, and. Um, the scat had taken me seven years to restore, and um, and I won in the rally. We were in the Golden Jubilee Rally of the Veteran Car Club, which is the oldest motoring club in the world, formed in 1930. And so the Golden Jubilee, 50 years, was in 1980. And I won the best restoration against about 600 international competitors, and um, Prince Michael of Kent, presented me with the trophy at the Guild Hall, which is a beautiful building in London. Ah, oh, David, you, you've had some wonderful experience, even bringing out the Bluebird. I just, you know, the, the world land speed record car, and uh, it was around the time when I was pushing uh, little matchbox toys under lounge chairs, and that it, uh, it was lovely um, to think that we could be close to that sort of thing. Uh, I will chase you up at a later date uh, with... Uh, that uh, your trip, which we've, you've told me a little bit about, but uh, it'd be lovely to catch up. But for the moment, David uh, Berthon, thank you very much for your time. Pleasure, David. Lovely to chat. And that is David Berthon, who is a motoring journalist, writer and promoter and other things and a lover of old cars and has done some fantastic restorations. We've talked about his 1913 roles just uh, not that long ago here on the program. Uh, I'm sure we'll hear more of him in the future. The full interview with David Berthon can be heard on our website at drivenmedia.com.au. You're listening to Overdrive. Volkswagen Halo vehicle, the Turag V8 TDI Airline, shares the same 4-litre twin-turbo V8 diesel engine as the Bentley Bentayga and the Audi SQ8, amongst others, in the Volkswagen Group. This beating heart pumps out 310 kilowatts and a stunning 900 newton metres at just 1,700 revs driving all four wheels through the full motion system and a ZF 8-speed auto transmission. It's also relatively economical. We average 10.1 litres per 100 k's over our week. It will run from 0 to 104.9 seconds. That's Golf R territory, and faster than many Porsche Cayennes. The real key to the Turag is how easily it will potter around town, with a calmness that belies its stunning performance capabilities. The Turag V8 is priced from $136,500 plus the usual costs, and is fully equipped in R-Line specification, including standard night vision, sound and comfort, and inner vision packages. The only options are colour or a moonroof. So, is the V8 Turag R-Line worth the money? Absolutely it is. It is, in fact, a performance bargain. You're listening to Overdrive. A few weeks ago, I interviewed the world-famous Finnish race and rally driver, Rauno Altonen. He revealed many things in his measured and precise way, especially about competing in the original minis. To get a feel of what it was like to watch these little pocket rockets in the rough rally conditions of Australia, I asked the legendary Australian commentator, Will Hagen, to recall his impressions. I mean, many, uh, certainly, sales went mad, you know, with all these successes. And, of course, Paddy Hopkirk won the Monte Carlo rally in a mini. And I can remember when minis were, and again, Evan was behind this, and minis were, were running in things like the Southern Cross Rally and so on, and they had sump guards on because they had minimal ground clearance. 
in the still of the night, you'd go, and they used to run the rally all through the night, which again was another charming part of things, that they'd bolt on this whole band of bright lights across the front of the car, and they'd blast all through the night, and you'd sometimes you'd park your car a kilometre from where you were going to spectate, and over in the distance, suddenly, you'd see lights flashing in the air, a little bit of light, and it's gone, and it's coming again, and then you'd start to hear the, the engines and the gears, and they'd be straight-cut gears, and they were whining. Then you'd hear the minis coming, and you'd hear crash as the sump guard hit the ground, and crash again and again, and they used to wear out the sump guards. Mm. They had to replace the sump guards on the rally minis, and on one occasion, Timo Mackinnon got new front tyres, and they had studded tyres. This was for the the ice and snow events in Sweden and places at the beginning of the year. And after 10 miles, he wanted a new set of tyres because he'd torn the studs out of what he had. <laughs> there was also a time a great flexibility when you consider the rally drivers and Ralna was one who was a rally driver and was said to have perfected left foot braking and then steps into... Yes. Onto a circuit that he doesn't, has never seen before or never been at before and races a mini around there for seven hours or so along with a co-driver, Bob Holden, and wins the race. I mean, the versatility and the concentration of that is staggering. All of that. And again, you know, you've got things now like Formula One where you're locked up, you're not allowed to do anything else. And go back to Jim Clark, who'd get in a Lotus Cortina and do a 10-lap race at Silverstone or Brands Hatch or somewhere just for the fun of helping Ford, but also just having a steer, you know. Whereas the drivers today just are locked up and to concentrate in one particular area. You know, you look at the late Sir Jack Brabham, and he drove sports cars, he drove Formula 2, he drove Grand Prix cars, he drove later at Bathurst, but he'd earlier driven at at Bathurst, and in fact, he had entered on a motorbike at Bathurst, although he didn't actually finally run at Bathurst on a motorbike, but he had entered to ride a motorbike at Bathurst. And, uh, you know, these people drove all sorts of things through a year, as you're saying, of, of people like Paddy Hopkirk, Rana Alton, and so And they loved it. They loved the versatility. They loved the variety. They loved the challenge of seeing how well I can go in this. And <laughs> And in a sense, of flogging the thing to death. I mean, they had no respect for the vehicles at all. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the retirement the retirement race of these things was, was pretty ominous. You know, because I think Altonans failed to finish 43% of the rallies he was in. I don't think that was necessarily a bad driver. It was the case that he was pushing a little car, particularly the Minis, against Porsches and pushing them to beyond their limits. Well, it, it's a little bit of that, but it was also the fact that there was a, an attitude in Europe that you had to show how quick you were. It didn't matter if, ultimately, if you went off, as long as you'd won a stage and shown that you were quicker than anybody else at one stage. And I, again, I can remember my great friend and, and uh, co-worker, Evan Green, telling me, Lancia, in pre-season testing had written off their entire team of cars. The drivers had crashed all of them, and they had to rebuild and start again. The European attitude was uh, was very much, oh, I was super quick. Yeah, I, I 
I crashed and was out on stage three, but, you know, by gee, I was quick until then. <laughs> and in fact, Tommy Mackinnon, no relation to Timo Mackinnon, Tommy Mackinnon was one of the first who came along and had a high finishing rate. And again, David, you know, people talk of, oh, he's the greatest driver and things. Hang on a moment. Check Sebastian Loeb. Sebastian Loeb was, I forget whether it's eight or nine times world rally champion. If you look up, he has won something like 780 special stages. Now, how do you compare that with Lewis Hamilton doing nothing more in a year than 20-odd Formula One Grand Prix that can't run over two hours? The Dakar's just been won by Kevin Benavides on a, on a Honda, and his running time in on a Honda bike for the prologue and 12 stages was 47 hours. Now, a Grand Prix isn't allowed to go more than two hours. So that's 23 Grand Prix done in a fortnight <laughs> on a bike. The full interview with Will, and it went for some time, ranging over many subjects, can be heard at drivenmedia.com.au. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Rob Fraser, Bill Thomas, David Berthon, Will Hagen and Paul Just for their great help in putting this program together. Overdrive is syndicated across Australia on the Community Radio Network. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au. All previous programs are available as podcasts on iTunes or Spotify, or there's our Facebook and Instagram sites, both called Overdrive City. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening.